Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 15. Today, I'm bringing you part two of my last interview with movement coach and manual therapist, Josh Landis, who works out in Denver at Denver Pain and Performance Solutions and is the founder of Landis Movement Systems. My last podcast, number 14 with Josh, was super popular and people had some really great feedback as to what they learned from listening. In that episode, Josh and I started talking about different topics similar to both yoga teaching and personal training. We covered things like giving effective cues, different teaching techniques, and the concept of muscle compensation. Since we didn't get to all the questions, we thought it would be helpful to pick up where we left off, so that's where we're going to start today. So first of all, I do want to give a listener shout out to two people who wrote wrote reviews on iTunes about the podcast, and their usernames are More Life Plant Based and (laughs) a Boston superfan, Boston Red Sox 2004. So I want to thank you both for leaving nice reviews. <clears throat> I'm just getting started with reviews on uh, on iTunes, so feel free to leave one there as well. So I want to start out by reintroducing Josh Landish. Josh Hi. is a strength coach and a licensed massage therapist by trade, but he prefers to be referred to as a movement coach and a manual therapist. He combines many different bodywork techniques and movement modalities to create a really integrated approach to helping clients resolve pain, expand movement capacity, and improve overall performance. So Josh, here we go. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I got a little ahead of myself there. Hello. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I took a breath and I was like, oh, he mm. thinks I'm not he thinks I'm done. <laughs> that good. is okay. This is this is all. <laughs> I don't edit these things. I like them to flow and and be natural. So no worries there. So be. yeah. So so again, your call. I said in your intro, you're in Denver. So shout mm-hmm. out to to Denver. Awesome place. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're gonna get some snow. Our first snow of the season uh, tomorrow or Sunday. Have you guys had any snow out there yet? 
we have actually for a little while now, and believe it or not, it just started snowing about 30 minutes ago. Wow. So now we're getting, we're now getting some more. Okay. All right. You're probably going to send it this way on, on Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Um, well, I want to start out by reading one of the reviews that I got on our earlier joint episode, not only to give you props for being such a great teacher, but to bring up a topic that we can discuss in more detail, this idea of foundation and the impact of working from the ground up. So mm-hmm. first, um, let me just read what uh, what the comment was, what the review was on uh, my website, which is where, which is one of the ways that people access uh, the, the podcast. So mm-hmm. this review is from Julie Brook, and Julie says, love the podcast. I've been a client of Josh basically since he moved here to Colorado. And you had mentioned in the early episode you moved from L.A., right? Correct. Yeah. So she says, I've been a client of yours since you moved to Colorado. And she says, I had severe pain in my feet. And after months of uh, working and assessing issues, the issues about the pain in my feet, uh, after months of working with Josh, the pain was just gone. I was able to do normal everyday activities that I had not been able to do for years because it hurt so much just to even walk around. Even though most therapists don't like to accept the fact that they fixed or healed their clients, if it wasn't for Josh, I would still be crippled today. Yes, I did all the work, but Josh is the one who figured out what was wrong and through several different tests made my feet work again. Wow. What did you think love when it. you saw that? Love it. I, <laughs> I love getting that feedback from clients. It's very rewarding. That's what it's all about. For me. Yeah. It's, not to, it's not to boost my ego, but it's no. to genuinely actually make people's lives better and give them their vitality back. So that's great to hear. Yeah, that is just, I mean, wow. And when you think about, I mean, there's nothing to say one person's pain is more or less than another person, but when you can't walk around and, and do activities of daily living without pain, I mean, that is a regular problem. It's not just when you just tried to do one thing. Yeah, it kind of sucks. It's very mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. So I love that feedback. And of course, without getting into what specifically was happening with Julie, let's talk a little bit about issues that can arise from the feet. Because as I mm-hmm. said before, this is such a central theme in yoga teaching, so it's a great place to start. As a teacher myself, I always encourage newer teachers to teach from the ground up. It can really help your students out with what's really critical and important to create stability, and then you can work kind of up the chain, so to speak. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about this. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot of ways we can go with the discussion on feet, but and I wouldn't necessarily consider myself to be the utmost expert on feet, but I do have a pretty good knowledge base with it. Um, I think that the feet are one of the most important key areas in the entire body. The others probably being the pelvis and um, the neck and and the skull, actually. Those are kind of, to me at least, the three areas that tend to have the largest overall global impact when it comes to movement and and Mm. function. Mm. And so... Uh, when I'm looking at the feet, the first thing I want to really get to know about someone's feet is how do they stand? I mean, do they tend to shift more weight onto one leg than the other when they're just standing around? Do they have an inability to pronate or supinate on either foot? Do they tend to fall into pronation with both feet? I mean, there's a lot of issues that can arise from that. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's really important to consider is the fact that whatever whatever the feet are doing, 
they are providing direct feedback for the rest of the kinetic chain, like you were mentioning earlier. Mm. And so there's a very distinct relationship between the feet and the hips. Mm. And it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. You want to think about how, you know, an inability to load, let's just say an inability to, to load the outside of the foot, that's going to then limit how well you're able to fire your lateral quad and your hip abductors, for uh-huh. example. Or if you don't have the ability to, um, or uh, what's another good example? Let's just say you tend to overpronate in the squat, right? You get really, really uh, kind of gross knee valgus when you're doing something like that, either in a lunge or a squat or anything lower extremity. Mm-hmm. That is going to largely dictate what happens with the hip and then the knee. And oftentimes, I think we talked about this last time, the knee is um, very often kind of, uh, subject to whatever is going on at the at the feet or the hips. Right. And so the knee is very often kind of um, where we where we get symptoms, but it's usually not where the problem is coming from. Right. And I actually want to I want to stop you right there because I think yeah. this is exactly where I'm kind of headed in my brain as you're talking when it comes to the real life examples of when students come up and complain about something after class in yoga, and they're complaining about a body part that's up the chain, but it's really mm-hmm. something happening in the context of dynamic movement at their foundation, most likely, many times. Totally. Mm -hmm. The way that I will often distinguish for myself, Mm. you know, if some, because knee pain is really, really common. Mm. Everybody's got it one way or another almost. Um, Different times, different contexts, different movements maybe. But one way that I really like to parse out whether or not knee dysfunction and knee pain and symptoms are being driven by the feet is just to play with open chain and closed chain movements. Okay, and talk about that because I always get confused between the two. Sure. So closed chain, you can kind of artificially close chains and you can you can really make it complex. But the simple way to really think about closed chain and open chain is that let's just use the feet as an example since that's what we're working or we're talking about anyways. Mm-hmm. An open chain movement would be one that is involving the lower extremities, the legs, but the feet are not grounded against any surface. Mm-hmm. So think like if you go to the gym and you do like a leg extension machine or mm-hmm. a hamstring curl or something like mm-hmm. that, where the foot, the plantar surface of the foot is not actually touching a surface, not on a wall, it's okay. not on the floor. The foot's kind of floating around. They're so that would be an open chain. Got it. Um, a closed chain movement would be something like walking or squatting or lunging, where the foot is actually your anchor point and it is engaged with the surface that you're on, whether that be you know, a platform that you're pushing on a machine or the floor itself yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Let me let and, me jump in here and just make a, um, I know I'm interrupting you. I'm just having like so many that's... thoughts as you're talking. I'm like, stop thoughts, stop. But, <laughs> but it reminds me of when we were talking last week about the difficulties a lot of people have coming into wheel and how, help me out here, that's a closed chain posture because the feet are grounded, but we're asking the hip extensors, uh, the hip yeah. flexors to lengthen. But the person mm-hmm. might get some lengthening if they were, I don't know, doing something on their back where their feet were off the ground and they were trying to, or maybe doing something on their belly. Let's take like locust pose yeah. where that's open chain in regards to stretch your hip flexors versus closed chain. Okay. So that. Yes. Okay. That's a good good illustration there to kind mm-hmm. of paint the picture for listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you and could so- even think about modifying by giving people open chain versus closed chain if they have difficulties in terms of, like last week, all the compensations that can come up. 
Totally. Okay. And the, the point that I was trying to arrive at with this open chain, closed chain discussion is I will use open and closed chain movements to determine is there knee dysfunction coming from the feet or not. And mm-hmm. I would say probably 60 or 70% of the time it, it actually is. Um, and it's specifically when people are like doing something like a lunge or a squat really. And when you do a closed chain movement where you are then involving the foot, so the knee is being affected by how the foot is loading, mm-hmm. right? And that drives symptoms. Whereas if I have someone do an open chain movement where we more or less do the same thing. So let's say, <coughs> excuse me, let's say I have them do a lunge and they feel knee pain, but then I have them go into maybe like a sideline position or even just a supine position and they bring the leg up at 90 degrees and they just do knee extensions there. Mm-hmm. If I'm getting pain with the foot grounded, but I'm not getting that same pain uh, signal from an open chain movement where the foot isn't grounded, that's a pretty good indicator that the foot being loaded is the thing that's driving the symptoms. Right. And so that automatically will make me look at the foot and be like, okay, what are they not doing in the foot? Are they over supinating or over pronating? Or are they not able to load a certain part of the foot properly? Mm-hmm. Is the ankle not moving the way it needs to? Something down there into the lower part of the chain is what's driving the knee symptoms. Mm-hmm. So then if we go and correct the foot or we do a strategy where we're maybe mobilizing an area of the foot that's not mobile, and then we can get that whole foot to function better, and then we go and have the person repeat that movement again, mm-hmm. and it improves. Mm-hmm. Maybe not fully resolves it, but it improves. Chances are we need to continue to work on the feet in order to resolve the knee symptoms. So that's a really easy way of, of being able to parse that out. Mm-hmm. Now... If remember last week when we ended, I was trying to kind of pull everything together and asked for your help in coming up with a couple of, you know, I I guess I could say sound bites that people could walk away with in terms of how they were going to move forward. When I think about Mm -hmm. the foot and I think about maybe newer teachers in regards to the anatomy of just the foot, I mean, there's a lot going on there. Um, If people are, you know, just learning that or don't know it, especially in the context of yoga teaching where we might not be adding a lot of anatomy to our teaching to the feet, are there some general cues that can help people create better alignment in their feet? Definitely. One of the things that I probably will use the most with clients, because when you're working with clients, most of them don't really understand anatomy very thoroughly either for the most part. And so some of the cues that I'll use, or, or I think we talked about this last time too when we were talking about cueing, was I don't want you to necessarily feel this or do this. I want to just bring your attention to a different area. So oftentimes I will say, when you're, when you're standing here or when you're going through this movement or as you're getting into this position or as you're lowering down or whatever it is, right, yeah. with the given movement, what are you feeling in your feet? Part of it is me. I'm watching their feet and kind of seeing what they're doing. But part of it is I'm trying to get them to – to have an experience or an embodied awareness of what they're experiencing in their feet. And so one of the cues I'll use is just, I want your entire foot engaged with the ground. I want your foot to be as spread as wide as possible. And I want as much of the foot in contact with the floor as you can get. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that alone will be very, very helpful in getting people to be aware of if they're trying to do that and then they're not able to, it'll start to illustrate for them where are they not able actually to get the foot to engage with the floor? Mm-hmm. And that alone can 
can give them a lot of sensory feedback, and then they can tell me, hey, I'm not, I, I feel like I can't get, you know, the, the base of my big toe, the ball of my foot, I just can't get it to meet the floor or engage with the floor strongly. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's take a look at that, and we can start to break it down further. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Um, so in the context really of helpful. in the context oh, of teaching, let me just ask, in the context of teaching, because again, we can't get that back and forth feedback happening between us and the people mm-hmm. in our class. So something along the lines of you know spread sp- spread root into your feet and and in all aspects of your foot, spread I don't know spread root yeah, down. Yeah, I, I say splay the foot, spread the foot, the, foot. the mm-hmm. whole foot to engage with the floor. Okay. Another thing that I'll talk about with clients when I'm coaching or teaching is the concept of a tripod foot. And so um, if you think about a tripod in general, it is mm-hmm. a very stable structure, right? we got three right. points of contact that really allows us to root ourselves and feel grounded. Uh, the foot basically yeah. operates in a similar way, yeah. at least when it's in supination, right, when we're pushing off. And so we want to think about those three points of contact of the foot being the heel or the calcaneus, right. the ball of the – or the base of the first met or the, the first – uh, digit, I should say. So the ball of the foot, right? The yep. base of the big toe. And then kind of the base of the pinky toe. So basically we got two points on the forefoot and then the heel. And if you think of those three points as being kind of the the main points that you want to more or less try to evenly distribute weight through, mm-hmm. then that is oftentimes a very good cue for people. Sometimes you'll get you know more weight on the outside of the foot versus the inside, or you'll feel that they feel that they can only put weight in their heel or they can only put weight in their forefoot or whatever. But usually using that tripod cue mm-hmm. will allow people to also get that sensory feedback that they need or awareness of what is not able to work properly so that they can start to kind of uh, tweak things here and they make subtle adjustments and how they're firing their leg muscles or their hips and maybe make it feel a little bit better get on any given uh, strength exercise or any given pose. Mm-hmm. So the concept of tripod foot, spreading the foot, and then I would say one other cue that I like to use is try to really make the toe box wide. The right? toe box. Just try to really, yeah, so the base of the toe is just trying to get that forefoot, the base of the toes to be as wide as possible. So you don't feel like you're you're curling the toes. Or you don't feel ah. like you're, you're, you're getting that like hallux valgus where the big toe is curling. You're just trying to basically make the foot big and wide. Yeah. And the the broader base that you have, this is just a general rule with physics in general, the wider base you have, the more stable you'll be. Right. Right? And so if you can make the feet themselves wider, hmm. you're going to have a more stable base to work off of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I was actually just talking about this. I did a Facebook Live uh, this morning, and I was talking about wider positioning in yoga where so much of traditional yoga is bring the feet together. Um mm-hmm just in terms of creating stability. Although I do wonder, and we talked when we talked about compensation, and I know every body is different, but I notice a lot of times when I teach in a way where I do ask people to bring the feet together, let's say for like chair pose or a chair pose type twist, they mm-hmm. ha- have trouble doing that. And I don't know if that has to do with they're not really hearing my cue, they're not aware of what's happening at their feet, or could there be be some kind of barrier to bringing their feet together? There can. I wouldn't say it's probably super common, at least in my experience Okay, personally. okay. Yeah, probably not. But there definitely can be. You can have, you know, someone who's got, you know, 
uh, excessive hip antiversion or retroversion or they're more bow-legged or something like that, uh-huh. or they were born with hip dysplasia. You know, there could be things that are uh-huh. kind of underlying structurally that huh. may not allow them to get quite to that position. Right. Um, it's hard to say for sure, right. but especially in that context of teaching in a group. Right. Um, so but yeah, it's, it's, inter- it's hard to say for sure. It's but. interesting that you throw out those things, and that, again, just points to in a group context, how little we know, and just that idea of, you know, say it once, maybe again a different way, but then move on because the barrier could be something you're not even aware of in the person's body. Totally. And I'll find that in the strength and conditioning world too, um, where there's a lot of asymmetry just naturally throughout the body. Yeah. Just even if you develop perfectly normal, right? We have one liver, we have one lung that's bigger than the other, we have one heart, we have, you know, and so just viscerally we are, asymmetrical and thusly how our core muscles will fire and engage and how our ribs are positioned everything will be slightly asymmetrical how our pelvis will be situated will be slightly asymmetrical and so there's a certain amount of asymmetry that's just kind of natural and normal and to be expected Uh and the goal I don't think should ever be to make everything perfectly symmetrical because the body itself is not Um, and so we'll see that in training too where it's like the goal maybe with, like, I keep going back to the squat because it's an easy thing to talk about. Right. If we're squatting and I'm, I'm trying to have both of my clients' feet point exactly the same direction and have their hips exactly the same direction everything, and there's limitation or there's pain there, well, what happens if we assess your pelvis and see, oh, well, I, we're, I'm suspecting your, your left hip socket is a little more antiverted than your right. So I'm going to actually have you turn your left foot and leg out slightly more than you do your right foot. And let's see if that allows the squat oh. to feel better. And oftentimes actually setting up in an asymmetrical stance on purpose will facilitate better movement for them just because it's accommodating their natural structural asymmetry. Yeah. So that's an important thing to consider. Yeah. And I just had a thought. I know a lot of times in yoga sequencing, people will do like horse stance, goddess pose, whatever you might call it, where they just have people come into a squat. And, you know, sometimes there's different amounts of cueing around the foot position. But I never thought of offering people the chance to have their feet positioned differently to try to see if that affects their ability to squat with more ease. Maybe mm-hmm. they don't turn out the same or, turn, you know, maybe... I, and, and I also find it so curious in that particular pose. Some people can turn their feet all the way out and mm-hmm. some people can't. And anyway, it's just I never thought of doing it with each foot independently, yeah. externally rotating, depending on the sensation they have in the hip as it relates to the whole movement. Like what is the point of what you're mm-hmm. trying to do in this thing anyway? Yeah, and sometimes it is just a neurological kind of a compensational. This muscle is not working well. Yeah. And if we get it to work well or work better, it'll fix it. Sometimes it's actually a structural right. limitation that we need to understand and work around. So right. being able to parse that out as a, as a teacher is important. Right. And I always say, like, we can't see inside their bodies, so we don't know. So our best opportunity to help them is to really just give them lots of options. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I feel like we could talk about feet for the entire episode because I have all these, other, sure. <laughs> all these other ideas. Because when you started out by saying feet, pelvis, and feet, pelvis, and the neck skull as being like these three major pieces, I actually wrote that down. And if we have time, I want to come back to that. So hold, the, sure. <laughs> hold that thought. So, all right. So 
the next thing I had written down to, to discuss was in the prep for our last episode, we were talking about, and I kind of like to blend in these social media things because they are so real and people can relate to them at least from the perspective of having seen things like this. So I'm sure most people have seen before and after type social media posts, either as it relates to showing somebody's progress or in this case, showing the right way to do something and the wrong, and the wrong way to do something. And I always like, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned, the big red X <laughs> that's over yep. the don't ever do this. And I always yeah. find that makes me chuckle because it's like, be careful about what you say don't ever do around anything when it comes to people's yeah. bodies. But anyway, so, um, so this idea of the right way and the wrong way. And then there's other posts where they try to illustrate the fact that every movement is really unique and nothing's inherently bad so have you Mm -hmm. seen these and what kinds of totally i've seen it all over the place on social media (laughs) yeah and philosophically for me i tend to uh resonate more with the the latter more Mm -hmm. a bit you movement is unique to the individual Mm -hmm. i think that like anything it is very context specific and so Mm -hmm. There is no right or wrong way to do any given movement, but there are definitely ways that are more or less optimal for the given individual. And so understanding all the factors that go into that, you know, their goals, what are they even trying to achieve with the training that they're doing or the movement that they're doing? Um, What are their structural limitations? What are their functional limitations? What is their history? Um, Do they have the capacity? Ultimately, for me, it really does come down to do they have the capacity for that movement? And if not, why? And that's where my assessments kind of really get more in depth is I'm going to look at the structure. I'm going to look at all the different systems of the body and see how they might be playing into their ability or inability to do a given movement. So I would say that trying to steer away from the idea that X is good and Y is bad is, is probably the best way to go about it. Don't think of it as good or bad. Just think of it as optimal or suboptimal, or is it appropriate for that person? Mm-hmm. And I think most movements, I mean, you can see, like, if you look at someone like a Cirque du Soleil performer or something like that, mm-hmm. they're able to contort their bodies into all kinds of crazy positions and do some incredible feats of strength, you know, up on the the trapeze and stuff that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they're able to do so. Granted, dancers' bodies are off. <laughs> also pretty pretty beat up most of the time right but i think that's more of a product of just doing it over and over and over and over and over again and not having enough balance other ways right but certain people are able to contort their bodies into all kinds of crazy positions and feel perfectly okay doing it whereas others they can do something that's relatively basic just like bending over and touching their toes and it causes excruciating pain Mm -hmm. so what is what is the difference between the two is it because one person's moving right and the other person's moving wrong probably not I would say, I would contend that it has far more to do with the person who is moving in that crazy way and that that way that might be super challenging for most. They have just built up their body to the point where it is strong and resilient and has the capacity for that movement. And so if there's any given movement that you're working on that you want to get to, I would say most things are possible for most people. Mm. Not all. There's always exceptions. But if you have a really specific goal of wanting to do this drill or this movement or lift this amount of weight or whatever it is, if you have a plan and map it out and build up the capacity in your body, whether that's the tissues being able to accommodate the stress or the joints being able to have the requisite range of motion or whatever it is, 
as long as your body is capable of it, there is no right or wrong. It's just can your body handle it or not? Mm. So that's how I tend to think about it. Yeah, I when you were talking that about it that way, it reminds me of when you run a marathon for the first time, and I've done that a couple times, and the first time I ran one, it took me a solid five months to train, and I would have never thought I could do it, but it's a buildup. Mm-hmm. So it kind of sounds like you're using the same idea with as long as there's not a functional problem or a structural problem in the body with repeated attempts done in a gradual way under the right conditions, it's possible. Totally. This is progressive overload. And mm-hmm. that is the, the primary foundation of, of strength training in general is a little bit of stress so that the body can adapt to that stress and come back stronger the next time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we overdo it with how much stress we put on the body and it actually kind of sends us in the other direction, makes us go backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're progressing things intelligently, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to continue to progress to the point where we're trying to get to. Mm. Yeah, it also makes me think about scenarios where I'm teaching and I'll see a newer student in class and I'll know right out of the gate that this is a brand new student. And they'll struggle with a number of things in the front end of the practice. And then, and then we'll get to something like back bends and they'll just like nail every single one. And I'll be standing up there thinking, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just sometimes... And it just shows me as a teacher, it's kind of humbling in a way because it really shows me that you can't make assumptions. You have to really be present and, and, you know, just be open to really anything. Yes, I agree. I think that most people, like I said, have the, have the, have the ability to get to wherever they want to go as far as movement goes, but it's just understanding that, um, don't paint things as black and white. Right. Everything is context specific. Right. And what works for one person might not work for another. Tech, everyone's got different kind of ways of doing certain skills. When we think about movements, strength training exercises, poses, they're really, they're just skills, right? right. They're skills and they're tools that we use to facilitate growth or change or adaptation. Mm-hmm. The same way like learning how to shoot a basketball or tie your shoe or whatever. I mean, any skill that you have to learn. If you, if you like, I'm a basketball player, so I'll use basketball as an mm. analogy. It's the same thing as like, you know, dissecting someone's squat and saying, you have to do it this way. Or you have to pull a deadlift from the floor or else it doesn't count or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you look at someone shooting a basketball, you can look at 10 different players on any given team and almost all 10 will have a very slight variation of how they like to shoot, where they like to release it from, how much wrist versus elbow versus legs versus whatever there's a different way or a different technique that each one will employ. Is anyone right or wrong? I would say it doesn't matter what your shot looks like as long as it goes, as long as it goes in, <laughs> right? So <laughs> um, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, right? There's a lot of different ways to try to meet a goal, and that's going to be unique to the individual. Right, right. As long as you don't break your ankle like Gordon Hayward did on the way down. That's yeah, that was down. gnarly. Not I good. saw that live. Yeah, <laughs> but amazing that he's playing again, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. is a true testament to, to the impact of rehab. It's And talk about feet, right? Back to the feet. It's yeah. just remarkable. So this is kind of, kind of leading in nicely to the next conversation um, or the next topic about the impact of the nervous system. And this is, again, something maybe we'll have to do episode three where we just talk about the nervous system. Um, oh, I could go on all day about yeah, the nervous yeah. system. And that is the bread and butter of what I do. Exactly. <laughs> and I love it, too, because to bring it up, because – in general anatomy training that's 
that's part of teacher training. It, it is a system that, it, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but isn't really discussed because anatomy is oftentimes presented in this very um, chunked out process of here's bones, here's muscles, and here's mm -hmm. poses, and muscles and poses. Uh, so I, I want to give you some time to just educate us a little bit, you know, especially because, um, you know, when you look at the way students move their bodies, and I was talking again about wheel pose and just not moving in that direction during the day and how the nervous system might be triggering kind of a protective mode going mm -hmm. into different shapes that they're, that it's unfamiliar with. Um, that's one example. And I also, you know, in my training for CPT exam, all about kind of muscle receptors. And I think that's another mm -hmm. topic that's really germane to teaching. So I don't know, where do you want to, <laughs> I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Sure. Um, well, where I will, I have to explain the nervous system a lot, kind of as my elevator pitch to new clients and stuff. And so <laughs> you I'm, have I'm a nervous system elevator to, pitch. I love that. I know, it's, it's hard, but <laughs> <I love laughs> taking that. the really complex and trying to make it relatively simple, at least to understand. Yeah, all right, and, let's start know, we, there. Let's start there. Let's do that. So <clears throat> I like these analogies. There's several that we can use. And just point of point of emphasis here. These analogies are a little bit oversimplified because the nervous system and the brain are far more complex than what we're trying to make them analogous to, mm -hmm. but it does help for understanding. And so <clears throat> there's a couple of ways I'll explain it to clients, depending on who I'm working with and kind of what resonates with them. Yeah. First, just think about the nervous system basically as kind of the software or the operating system for the machine that is our muscles and joints and tissues and all of that, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that we have nerves, we have brain, we have a spinal cord. And if those connections with those nerves are compromised, are you know, structurally compromised, so let's just say, you know, have a spinal cord injury, it'll paralyze you, right? That right. means the signal the signal from your nervous system, from your brain, is no longer being sent to a given area, so it can no longer function. Um you uh wanna think about sorry, I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of think about how I want to formulate this. Yeah. Um, the nervous system is the software, it is the operating system. And more often than not, when we have difficulty with movement or just how we express movement is really more of a product of how our nervous system is processing information. And so another idea that I will kind of throw out there to my clients to help them understand how the nervous system is functioning and what is dictating, you know, why are they in pain? Why are they feeling tightness here or there? Why is this certain position difficult for them. Um, our nervous systems are always taking in and processing information, right? You're sitting in the room right now, the ambient temperature, your, your, the pressure in the room, your barrel receptors, right. the, the, all of these things that are always processes occurring in the body, your heart's beating right now, your blood is flowing, all of these things are happening outside of your conscious awareness. They're just happening. And the nervous system is what's kind of making things tick along and, and go. The nervous system controls glandular production and metabolism and energy. It controls muscular output. It controls how strong and when muscles contract and in what sequence they contract to mm -hmm. produce movement. So how our brain is processing all of this input and information we're constantly receiving from our external and our internal environment, how well it processes that will ultimately determine the output, right? And the output will be, in, in our context of movement, right. it will be range of motion, pain, et cetera. And mm -hmm. so let's 
I'm just going to keep going back to the squat just to keep it consistent. Yeah. If I'm seeing somebody squat and I'm seeing them, I think we even used this example too last time. If I'm seeing them maybe get down to a certain depth of their squat and then they start to shift their weight to the left, mm-hmm. my suspicion right off the bat is, oh, I'm going to I'm going to cue them. Maybe they're just not aware. Cue them. I want you're shifting left. I want you to shift back into the right a little more. Well, what if they can't? What if it's because there's some sort of software glitch, let's mm. say, within that right extremity, that lower extremity that is not allowing them to load it properly. We can go in and and look and see, okay, <clears throat> if we if we if we do something to the foot, if we kind of turn the, the neurological signal down temporarily in let's just say the bottom of the foot, the plantar fascia on the right, and then we have them squat again and it, it minimizes that shift or it reduces the amount of compensation, that is a good or a good indicator or a suggestion that something in their right foot neurologically is probably not functioning well or not able to respond to the demand of the squat. Maybe mm-hmm. the tissues on the bottom of the foot, maybe some of the receptors in the foot are not tolerating stretch well. And so they are sending a signal to the brain that, hey, I don't want to be stressed here, but you're stretching me. The brain will process that information and it'll then send an output back to the area and it will modulate or adjust how the muscles are firing to avoid stressing that area. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there. Yeah, because I'm starting to ramble. No, (laughs) no, because this is this is actually a good place to kind of really apply it to yoga teaching in the uh, and also kind of the consumer knowledge of yoga. So these muscle receptors and just as you were describing it it's the feedback loop to the brain that says hey this is that protective thing right i'm not able to stretch like you want me to stretch so i'm actually going to send a signal to the muscle to contract to protect you is this yes correct okay and the muscles the muscles are basically at the mercy of almost every other system of the body they're kind of like the tip of the iceberg and I know in anatomy even, too, people who really like to go deep with biomechanics and anatomy. Um, anatomy is important, but we have to understand, again, the, the hardware components of our body are only going to do what they're told to do by the software components of our mm-hmm. body, right? Mm-hmm. And so if there's a bug or a glitch or an inability to get the right signal to that muscle, that muscle is not going to function or contract or relax normally the way that we want it to contract or relax. Right. So let's kind of go along this line of thinking as it applies to if we're teaching a posture that is emphasizing, let's say, like a low lunge, where it's emphasizing a lot of hip extension in the straight leg. And we teach Mm -hmm. it in such a way that we're encouraging a deeper position. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, for every person in the room, and I'm asking you this question, for every person in the room, if if our goal as a teacher is in that pose, hey, I want in our heads, we're thinking, I'm going to give them a chance here to go deep. Aren't Isn't every person in that class going to have a natural breaking point where even though they may be hearing in their logical brain, oh, she wants me to really go deep in this pose or he wants me, there's only so far that they can go anyway Mm -hmm. yeah structurally and potentially neurologically right Right. sometimes the hip anatomy itself the bony structure of how the the femur is sitting in the acetabulum or the ball in the socket that might limit them but more often than not it is more of a case of neurological input and output right and so 
if we've got a stretch receptor, let's say in the hip flexors, that when it gets stretched, it creates that protective response. Right. And the brain says, don't go there. I don't feel safe there. Therefore, I'm going to pump the brakes and create tension in the muscle to prevent you from right. going to the range I don't feel safe in. Right. And that'll be the result, right? So often I, I tell people this too because hamstring tightness is like a really common right. thing. Everyone talks, my hamstrings are tight, my hamstrings are tight, my right. hamstrings are tight. I'm going to stretch them. Well, my question usually is, your hamstrings are tight. Why do you feel like you need to stretch them? Right. How do you know that stretching them is the thing that's going to actually help them? Right, but isn't that us, where everybody goes? It is, yes. But that, I go deeper. I, I like to ask the question, well, why are the hamstrings tight in the first place? Right. Just, I mean, <laughs> right. uh, a headache A headache is not an aspirin deficiency. Right. right? <laughs> I heard somebody say that on, I think it was uh, Tom Purvis. He's okay. a really brilliant, really brilliant trainer guy. He's been around for a long time. I heard him say, you know, a headache is not an aspirin deficiency. Right. It's like it's the same thing. Is is hamstring tightness a deficiency in stretching all the time? No. It's it, it's typically more of a, a product of what is the brain telling the hamstrings to do based on everything else that's going on in the body. Right. And, and I so, think I think too the interesting thing about this, like I just talked about it from the perspective of the teacher in terms of what are you going to offer and maybe through this discussion I guess where I'm headed in that side of things is to say maybe we should be staying more in the middle lane recognizing that all these bodies in the room have a healthy functioning nervous system hopefully that's going to break them at a certain point you know put the brakes on at a certain point anyway Mm -hmm. but then what about the perspective of the yoga student who comes in and let's take the hamstrings things I want to have really stretchy hamstrings because that's what I read on social media or that's what I think from whatever information I've been absorbing into my brain. But mm-hmm. do you realize as a consumer of this movement practice that there's only so far your body's going to let you go anyway? Yeah. So what's really the point of bringing all of that, I have to be stretchy energy into the class? Why not just, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's just yeah, one well, of those things that I don't think consumer knowledge around muscle receptors is really out there as much as just knowledge of these are my hamstrings. Yeah, exactly. And some people don't even know that, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. point to their hamstrings and call them their quads, right? <laughs> right. Every leg muscle is a quad. Right, so, right. Yeah, it's, 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 hard to, it's harder to explain to them. But my first question with anything like that is, like you were just saying, well, why is there this belief that you need to have stretchy hamstrings in the first place? Let's maybe address that first right. <laughs> before right. we try to figure out how to make them more stretchy. Why do you feel like they need to be stretchy? Well, I kind and- of feel like <laughs> that lives in the same area or bucket as like, why is everybody talking about drinking celery juice right now? I don't know. I see this now all <laughs> over the place. Right. So I kind of feel like this lives in that realm of I don't know, it starts and then there's this perception and then this perception grows. And, and maybe for mm-hmm. some people, because I'm sure you'd agree that maybe they do have really tight hamstrings and maybe mm-hmm. that is impacting the movement ability of their pelvis or tightness in their lower back. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, so And s- it's, with these type of situations, it's always the chicken or the egg, right? right? It's like, is there something that's affecting the hamstrings, making them tight? Or is it the case that the tight hamstrings are are actually affecting the rest of my global movement and causing issues elsewhere. Right. What I tend to see is with hamstrings in particular, um, the inability to just utilize effectively and functionally the glutes and the lower back, just kind of the whole lumbo-pelvic area. If mm. there's a lack of stability in that area, 
your body and your brain and nervous system will put the brakes on your hamstrings because it doesn't want you to go outside of a range that it feels like it can handle, right? And so hamstring tightness is more often a product of the hamstrings or the, the glutes or some of the synergistic muscles not being strong enough. So oftentimes I will actually see uh, flexibility or, or uh, mobility increases just by creating more stability, you know, and that can be core. Like you can actually look and test and see, okay, let's check the hip, the hip flexibility. It feels restricted here and here. Let's do a couple things to really get our core dialed in and turned on and create more stability around the pelvis. And then let's recheck the, the flexibility in the hip. And very oftentimes, more often than not, it will improve. Hmm. And so uh, another good kind of general concept, I know this isn't early on topic specifically, but another good general concept as us as teachers for us to understand that's important, I think, is um, understanding the idea that, that stability starts from the center, right? It really does start from our core, and it really does start from our breathing. Hmm. And if we don't have a stable center, if we don't have a stable core, then the adjacent more distal segments will be compromised, right? You can't shoot a cannon out of a rowboat. I've hmm. also heard that said before, and I think it's also a really good way to put it. Hmm. Your ability to move through the arms or through the legs Will be, will be basically dictated by the stability of the platform that they are operating off of, right? Mm. So the arm will only be as strong as the shoulder can support, and the shoulder will only be as strong and stable as the ribcage can support. And so if I have a lack of stability in my ribcage in my thoracic area, my ability to produce power or to be mobile or to be strong in my extremity will be compromised, right? Mm. The, the, the foundation has to be strong in order for things branching off of that foundation to function well yeah it's so, it's funny because yeah. i kind of go between feet and core and mm -hmm. and this is again i think another area where nuance and context can be helpful because i'm sure some people listening might think wait a minute you guys just started out by talking about the feet and <laughs> now you're talking about mm -hmm. the core so mm -hmm. it's not an either or um Correct. although it's interesting to think about center out and then the other paradigm of bottom up yes and i would say that huh. if you want to arrange those into like a hierarchy of sorts uh. the core is always the most important just because huh. the first thing that we do when we're born the first movement and the most foundational movement of anything that we could possibly do is breathing okay. we can't breathe we can't survive <laughs> okay if we can't breathe we can't use our core see and i thought i core. thought you were going to say hug the knees into the chest because that's how we are in the womb and that's core focus oh. but i see what you i was like having this picture. i'm going to say once we're once we're not in utero anymore <laughs> okay. right? once we pop out the but first yeah, thing we breathing. do is we yeah. take our first breath right right first thing that happens and so <clears throat> our ability to breathe is paramount no matter what we're doing if you are going for a run and you can't breathe your right. energy will be compromised if you are trying to do a pose and you can't breathe in that pose, it is pretty indicative that you, that your nervous system does not feel safe or stable in that pose or in that position. Right. There's another topic we could really even get into right. as well. How much I will utilize breathing as a barometer to see how safe and or how comfortable is my client in this position or in this movement. And if I'm catching somebody holding their breath or clenching their jaw or their breath gets shallow or fluttered, that's usually a good indicator that the nervous system does not feel safe in that position or does not feel sta as stable as it should. And that's usually a sign that we need to need to regress or adjust or whatever. Got it. 
Got it. Okay, cool. All right. So we're going to just kind of put a little pin in this conversation for now, because <laughs> I know it is a big yeah. one, because um, I want to get to this this last second to last question. Maybe we'll skip the last one. Just go with this this next one about um, fascia. And I know, you know, in general, yoga teacher training, fascia doesn't always get a lot of discussion because, again, we're focused focusing primarily on bones and muscles. Um, but I know as a manual therapist, you most likely see a lot of this kind of thing. And you even mentioned plantar fascia when we were talking about the feet um, and just seeing the impact of unhealthy fascia on movement issues. So, you know, again, we can't always say, oh, this is a problem with fascia, this is a problem with muscle. They are near each other, wrap, you know, one's wrapped around the other. Um, but can you share a little of how you educate your clients about what fascia is and how you suggest they keep it healthy? Sure. Um, fascia, maybe the best way to think about it, there's a lot of ways to think about it, but fascia is basically the primary connective tissue in the body. So it is kind of like the, the network of, um, I don't know if, if how many of your listeners are like familiar with kind of what it looks like, hmm. but let's just say you're, you're, Everyone's eating turkey, right? Right. So when you're cutting open a turkey and you see kind of like that thin, white, kind of like stringy stuff kind right. of around some of the muscles and stuff, that is fascia. Right. That is the connective tissue that basically binds everything together in the body. It envelops muscles. There's large sheets of fascia in different areas, a couple of them being, you know, the bottoms of the feet, uh, the lumbar area, the thoracolumbar fascia, There's a, and the IT band. Those are all areas of really densely concentrated areas of fascia. And fascia, not only does it provide structural integrity for us, but it also is a huge network of receptors that mm -hmm. actually give our body, uh, send that, when we're talking, going back to the nervous system, no, right. the, fascia, the fascia is rife with receptors, and those peripheral receptors are the thing that kind of sends the feedback to the brain to tell us what's going on, where we are in space, what the joint positions are. Mm -hmm. And the brain can then use that feedback to, to help modulate movement and help compensate the way that it deems necessary. So to keep health, uh, to keep fascia healthy, um, one of the things that you really need to do is just move regularly and move in a way that is, uh, that helps all of the different areas of the body get stimulated you know, different, taking the body into all of its ranges of motion, making sure every joint is working. And then we're doing a lot of these global kind of compound movements, um, to kind of integrate the fascia and, and this neural network, so to speak, mm -hmm. of what controls movement. Secondly, the fascia itself um, and other connective tissues too, but the fascia itself can get really gummed up structurally. Like it can, it can form adhesions, it can get stiff, it can get tight. And so being able to work on the fascia from that perspective to actually physically manipulate it and move it around and stuff to release these adhesions and to get more mobility and, and movement in there is, is really important too. So um, that's kind of, I guess, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. That's what fascia is. That's generally how you want to be able to think about it and kind of take care of it. It's just like the large webbing within the body that is connecting everything. Right, right. Um, you know, so I know in the context of going to a gym or self-care people do at home or work that you do with your clients where you're using tools like foam rollers and massage balls, MFR, myofascial release balls, um, they're actually using something external to address the health of the fascia. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. So in the context of, let's say, teaching yoga, are we helping our students? How are we helping our students keep the fascia healthy 
even though we're not, unless we're doing a special workshop or class, bringing in those tools? Well, um, my opinion, I actually wrote an article about about uh, myofascial release specifically because it's a really popular thing, right? We do it all the time. Foam rolling, you see it everywhere. Trigger point stuff. There's so many different products out and tools out there now to address the fascia mm-hmm. via physical manipulation. Mm-hmm. I think of the fascia more from the perspective of the nervous system. I think of the body in general more this way. Again, I keep going back to the, the software versus the hardware, but yep. realistically, software is 90%, 95% responsible for the things we're feeling. I would say hardware accounts for about 5%. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's far more at the mercy of yeah. the brain and the output than anything. And so when we're using those tools, the same way that we're using movement, we're really stimulating the fascia more from a neural perspective. We're actually, we're stimulating those stretch receptors and we're, and we're exciting those, those signals that are being sent to and from different areas of the body. And so we don't necessarily need tool to manipulate the fascia to, to have a good desired effect on, on affecting the fascia positively. Movement just as much can, can help with that. Right. Um, myofascial release, more than breaking up the tissue, I think a lot of us think of the fascia and myofascial release as we're getting in there and we're breaking up scar tissue. We're actually physically breaking things down and changing it structurally. That is almost never the case because fascia is actually pound for pound stronger than steel. It is very, very tough stuff. Yeah, and, I will say when um, I did human dissection and we got to the plantar fascia, I stuck my hand under it. I could not. I I was like at the base of the foot with my hand under the plantar fascia and I was pulling my hand up against it, um, just <clears throat> applying a little pressure just to see. Same with the IT band. Couldn't. There was no. It was very thick. Couldn't budget, right? Yeah, yeah. it's really strong. Mm-hmm. And so really when we're doing myofascial release with balls and, and rollers and stuff is we're we are more so stimulating the receptors to downregulate the area, just almost like overstimulation of the receptors so that the muscle can relax. And then we're kind of, it's like wiping the board and kind of starting with a clean slate. That's really how I like to think about myofascial release is we are, we are toning down the signal in the area with it so that we can kind of operate with a blank slate so that we can then use movement to reinforce or change the pattern okay. that's being, that's in that area. So, as yoga teachers and as, as movement professionals, just getting people to move in a variety of positions and yeah. contexts and drills is the best way to address it. And, and um, if you are running into specific issues, then typically refer out. Right? I mean, that's kind of what you do. You, right. If there's a specific issue, send it to someone who does more specific work. Right, right, right. Okay. Oh, boy. All right. Well, I had one more question, but I really want to make sure that we kind of don't end in a rushed way and I don't want to cut you off mid <laughs> mid question. Wow, that was already an hour. That <laughs> yeah. time flies, huh? Yeah, they have a <laughs> really big clock here in the podcasting studio that I record from in Boston so I can see like as the time is clicking, I'm like just moderating in my head, okay, do I want to go into another question? But no, yeah. these are these episodes have been so helpful and I'm I'm feeling like a little selfish cuz I'm learning. I get to like, you know, kind of have these conversations with you <laughs> and learn myself. That makes so. me happy cuz that is my job. My my yeah. job other than working with people directly, I want to just put good information out there to yes. combat all the bad information. Yes. And maybe provide a different perspective on how to see some of these things. Yeah. Kind of opening, up, opening up new ways of thinking about the body and yep. movement. No, I, I, I love that is 
you know, part of your overall mission. And, and I, I relate to that very much myself. And sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like it may not be the most popular, like we may not be the celery juice of the movement world. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely not. I, <laughs> but have, who really wants niche. to be that? very niche. Right, exactly. So, all right. So let me just kind of you know, wrap it up in a little bow here. So listeners, we want to hear from you, Um, whether you're listening to the podcast on iTunes or off my website, wherever you're listening, please leave a review. Um, We love to read them. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you thought about today's episode. And if you missed the other episode, you can just get that right on my website, barebonesyoga.com or on iTunes. And just FYI for yoga teachers out there, if you're, I know we've talked a little bit about sequencing here. If you're looking for a quick and easy template to use to build sequences, Right on my homepage, I have a free sequencing building template, and you can just download it super quick. Uh, the website's barebonesyoga.com. Now, anyone interested in learning more about pain, movement, and personal growth, please, please, I'm a big follower of Josh's social media feed. So tell people how they can find you on the social platforms, as it were. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm mostly posting on Instagram right now. That's kind of the main platform I'm, I'm working on. So you can find me at Landis Movement Systems. And uh, you can also find me on LandisMovementSystems.com, my website. Um, that's where you're going to read more of my blogs and articles and stuff that I post. Um, and if you want to get kind of a more general idea of kind of where and how it is that I'm working and some of, some of the other work that I'm involved in, you can check me out at DenverPainAndPerformance.com as well. Great. Um, yeah, find me there. And I very much welcome anybody to reach out and ask questions because – that is my goal. I want to educate you. Anything that you're confused or curious or want to know more about, please feel free to reach out. I'd be yes. happy to, to share my knowledge. Yeah, that's excellent. That's a great way to end. So thank you for these two episodes. I know we'll do more in the future. Maybe we can just do like a whole special one just on the nervous system and make it like a little continuing education fun. type thing. Yeah, that would be fun. That's my passion right there, the nervous system. Awesome. Awesome. Well, have a great weekend. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm sure we'll be talking again really soon. Yes, sounds great, Karen. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye.